Good morning. How are you this morning? I hope all is well. Turn in your Bibles, please, with me to the book of First John as we continue our study of this book in a series that we have entitled Walk in the Light. If you have not uh, been here much this summer, you may not be aware of this series, but we're uh, just about done with First John. We're going to be in First John 5. There are Bibles underneath the chair around you. You can pull out that Bible and turn to page 1304 to find the passage we're going to look at today. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Hear God's Word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit and breathe upon these words that we've just heard. Illumine our hearts that we might understand them, Lord, and then fill us that we might apply this passage as we leave here today. Lord, help us be doers of the word and not hearers only. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really cool that we're looking at this passage of the Bible on the weekend that the Olympics are beginning. I love the Olympics. Enjoy watching all of those different events. I know you do too, but it's really cool that we're looking at this at this time because in verse 4, do you know what the word, the Greek word for victory is? It's the Greek word Nike, N-I-K-E, Nike. Just do it, right? And then the word overcomes, which is in verses 4 and 5, is a form of that word, the same word Nike. I pulled up Nike.com on my computer and wondered if they're still using Just Do It, and they are, but now they have another line, I think, to promote a shoe line of theirs that says, life isn't about finding your limits, it's about realizing you have none. Give me a break. (laughs) Everybody in this room knows our limits, right? But Nike is promoting this idea that you can just do it, just do it. You have no limits. I do like watching the Olympics, but what is the message we get as we watch in the announcer, in the commercials that surround the Olympics? Well, you know, historically the Olympics is rooted in paganism, and that comes out, doesn't it, in the just-do-it message that we get throughout the Olympics. It was a tribute originally to the gods Zeus and Hera. Christians didn't even participate in the early years of the Olympics. The Christian emperor Theodosius banned the Olympic Games in the year 391. 
Finally, in uh, 1896, a French aristocrat by the name of Pierre de Coubertin helped revive those games. But here's what he said. Listen to this. The first essential characteristic of the Olympics is to be a religion. It represents above and outside the church humanity's superior religion. Now, praise God, there are some Christian athletes participating in the Olympic Games. And some of them are quite public in their profession of faith, which is very encouraging. But the Apostle John, in this passage that I just read, is talking about victory. And he's giving us a totally different philosophy from just do it. John is saying, if you want to overcome... If you want to experience victory and joy and fulfillment in your daily life, which hopefully all of you do, you do it by faith. The message of this text is faith is the way to overcome. Did you see all the faith words in this passage as I read it? All of these words, three words, are forms of the same Greek word. Believes in verse 1. Faith in verse 4. And again, believes in verse 5. So this text is bound together by this theme of believing, believing, having faith. What is faith? Well, the simple answer is that faith is believing in Jesus Christ. But let's break that down some more. Here's a chart. You can see this triangle. I'm borrowing this from a long tradition in the Reformed faith of looking at faith in terms of three words. In Latin, maybe you've heard these, and I think this is a great definition of faith. Faith consists of three things. First of all, knowledge of facts. And then second, assent or agreement to those facts. And then finally, trust. And those three Latin words are notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Let me explain what those are. First... Notitia. Those are the facts or the content or the raw materials of the gospel. You know, things like there was a man named Jesus. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. The Bible is God's word. God is triune. God is love. Jesus rose from the dead. See, that's the raw materials of faith. You have to have that. You have to believe in something. Faith is not just faith in faith. You can't just believe positive thoughts, although a lot of people in our day and time would have us do that. You have to have content. That's why it says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, those are the facts. Secondly is a census. A census is conviction about those facts. In order to have faith, you have to agree or assent to the truth of those facts that I just listed. You know, there are thousands of Bible scholars out there who know about the Bible's claims. Many of them know more than you and I do. And they even teach about those claims. Take Richard Dawkins, for example. He's a famous atheist. He has the notitia down really well. He just doesn't have a census. He doesn't agree that they are true. But then 
notitia and a census are not enough. You know, even the devils believe. It says that in James 2.19. And they tremble. In order to have faith, you've got to have more than the facts and just simple agreement to those facts. You must also have fiducia. Fiducia is trust. Trust is when you not only know certain things about Jesus Christ and you believe that those things are true, but when you turn from trusting in anything or anyone else. Another word for that would be repent. Trust is when you turn and repent from every other source of trust and you rely upon Jesus and commit your life to Him. Uh, Think about bungee jumping for a moment. I know about bungee jumping. I know that some people jump off bridges with a bungee cord wrapped around their waist. I've seen the videos. I even assent to the idea that if somebody attached a bungee cord to me and pushed me off that bridge, I'd probably live to tell about it. So I've got the notitia and the ascensus. But I will never go bungee jumping. Because I don't have fiducia. I like the bridge, thank you very much. I'm not willing, you see, to transfer my trust from my own two feet to that bungee cord. You know, I have friends who know a lot about Jesus, the Bible, many other things. And they believe those facts to be true. They're not atheists. But it's just head knowledge they have. Mere intellectual assent. They have not yet made a commitment of their lives, their livelihood, their time, their money, their ambitions, their goals to Jesus Christ. They do not follow Jesus. They don't have a day-by-day living, bungee-jumping relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe that's true of someone here this morning. Maybe you know a lot. You know the Bible. You do go to church and you're very aware of the things of God. But you haven't yet come to that point of leaping into Jesus' arms. Transferring your trust totally to Him. In order to be a Christian, you see, in order to have faith, you must have all three. Knowing, agreeing, and trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's dive into the text now. Now that we've got that under our belts, what is faith? Let's talk about three things. Let me share three things with you. First, three things about faith. Faith is supernatural. Faith is transformative. And faith is empowering. We're going to look at each one of those. First of all, let's talk about faith being supernatural. Look at verse 1 again, and we're going to now more carefully move through this text. Verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The word believes is a present tense verb. The word born of God, this is interesting, is a a perfect tense verb. I don't know if you know much about these tenses. Greek's a little bit different anyway, but... A perfect tense verb, a perfect tense refers to completed past action that has ongoing effects in the present. And it's in the passive voice, which means that God 
if you're a Christian, did something in your life that you had nothing to do with. You were passive. God was active. He did it in the past, and it has ongoing effects in the present. That's what born of God is. So if you're a Christian this morning, it's because God reached down to you, lost sinner that you were, dead in your trespasses and sins, and did a miracle of grace in your heart. He brought you to life. He caused you to be born again. Born from above. Fancy word for that is regeneration. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus, famous words in John chapter 3, you must be born again or else you cannot see the kingdom of God. So friends, if you love God this morning, it's because he loved you first. And verse 1 teaches that. You see, regeneration precedes faith. Believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your faith is the result, the evidence of your past experience of the new birth. Three times in this text, John tells us that believers in Christ are people who have been born of God. It's in verse 1, two times, and it's in verse 4. So what does this mean, this first point about faith being supernatural? It means that salvation is all of grace. God didn't save you because of you. He saved you because of Himself loving you, finding you in your lostness and in your sin and reaching down to redeem you. I love this hymn. I don't know if you've ever heard. It's kind of a... It's written by a guy named Anonymous. I don't know who that is, but... I love the words. Listen to this verse. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. Faith is supernatural. But not only is it supernatural, we see in this passage that faith is transformative. Transformative. I just mean by that, it's life-changing. Look, at, look again, verses 1 through 3. Let me read those three again. Everyone, says John, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Now, let's be honest. It's a little hard sometimes to read John. He flits from one idea to another, to another, to another. And unless you're really following his train of thought, it it doesn't appear obvious what the connections are. Basically, in those three verses, what you've got is an interplay between three things. Faith, love, and obedience. And not coincidentally, that's basically the message of the letter of 1 John. Evidences of faith. What are they? Belief, love, and obedience to God's commandments. But that passage that I just read is kind of circular. It begins in verse 1 with believing in Jesus. And the text ends in verse 5 with believing in Jesus. And then in the middle are these ideas that John has been hitting on throughout the letter. So I came up with a little chart. Maybe this will help you a little bit. This chart shows you... 
what I think is his train of thought in the passage before us this morning. He's teaching us that regeneration produces faith, as I said before, and faith in turn, over time, produces all kinds of radical changes in someone's life. Love for God, love for others, obedience to God's commandments, holiness, you know, things like that. And then those things in Those things in turn stir up more faith, more love, more holiness, more desire to obey. And it just goes on and on like that. Faith, in other words, transforms our head, our heart, and our hands. So what's the implication of that? Now this is hard. I want you to listen to it. If your faith is not impacting your daily life, changing you, Changing, transforming you into a person who is growing more loving, more patient, more kind, more empathetic, more uh, or rather slower to anger, quicker to listen, slower to speak. Something's not right. If your faith in Jesus is not making you more and more sensitive to sinful thoughts and attitudes giving you more and more desire to please God and obey the Ten Commandments and repent of sin and live a holy life. If it's not doing that, something's missing in your faith. John Calvin said, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. See, love and obedience accompany genuine faith. They are evidences that your faith is real. Now, please, we're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about perfection. We're still going to sin, you and I, even though we've been reborn. But true faith produces renewed character. Sanctification is taking place in the life of someone who's been born again. So let this text examine you and me. Let's let it examine us. When you look into your heart, Do you see a desire to love God? A desire to obey His commandments? Do you see a growing, albeit slowly, sometimes fits and starts, sometimes backwards five steps and forward one or two, but do you see a growing love and respect for other people, even those with whom you disagree? When you sin, When you sin against God, does it grieve you? Does it make you sad and sorry? Do you come to the Lord and tell Him you did that? When you hurt other people with your words or actions, do you seek to make things right? See, genuine faith is evidenced by those things. Is Christianity making you more humble or more proud? Is it making you more careful Or more careless? Is it making you more concerned about the eternal state of non-Christians around you? Or more apathetic? Examinations are hard. We usually don't like going to the doctor and getting an exam. You've just had one. If you're honest, you're probably saying inside your heart right now, Mike, I've got a long way to go. I see a lot of sin in my life. 
Some of the things you just mentioned, I'm not there. I'm, I'm really struggling. I see a lot of problems. You know what? I want to say to you, that's good. I'd be worried about you if you did not see your sin. You know what you have to do the moment you see your sin, though? That's when you revisit the notitia. The facts that you know are true. That's when you go back to those facts and preach the gospel to yourself. Remember what I said earlier about the word believes in verses 1 and 5? It's in the present tense. That means you never stop believing the gospel. You believe, believe, believe all the time. That's what you do when you see your sin. You believe the gospel. You believe, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? It means He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the promised deliverer who came to bear your sins upon His own body on the tree. He's the one promised in the Old Testament who would be, uh, what does it say, pierced for our transgressions and who suffered and was crushed for our iniquities. And He did that for you because He loves you. You are the object of His affection. And and you believe also, verse 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that He is co-equal with God. That He is the one and only Son, the unique God-man, who even though He was in the form of God, what does Philippians 2 say? He thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God, but He made Himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and laying down His life for His brothers and sisters. See, When you see your sin as you should and as you do, you must run to Christ, the Son of God, and lay hold of Him and His righteousness and His promises, and you rest in Him. You confess your sins. You claim the promise that we saw back in 1 John chapter 1, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher of the late 19th century, said that faith is believing that Christ is what He is said to be and that He will do what He has promised to do and then to expect this of Him. So take your sins to Christ and day by day, What's going to happen if you have a habit of running to Jesus with your sin? The cross will get bigger. Love and holiness will grow. Again, sometimes very gradually and slowly. And you will still have setbacks. But love and holiness will grow. And the commandments of God will not feel burdensome. That's what John says in verse 3. They will become your delight. See, faith has this transforming effect. Upon the life of the Christian. So we've seen that faith is supernatural because we've been born from above and given the gift of faith. And faith is transformative. It changes our lives as we grow in Christ. Final thing I want us to see is that faith is empowering. Faith is empowering. Look again at verses 4 and 5. John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I love what one commentator said. He said, faith enables the believer 
to break free of the world's downward pull. Have you experienced the downward pull of the world? If you're a believer, of course you have. But what is the world? Let's talk about that word. It's the Greek word cosmos, very familiar. Sometimes the word world means planet earth. Sometimes it means the people that live on planet earth. But that's not what's meant here. No, John is talking about one of the three big enemies of the Christian. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world is the evil system that is over against God. The evil system that is in enmity with God and under the control of our enemy, Satan. The world is the self-centered, God-hating, life-destroying, truth-defying, corrupt value system that seeks to control your mind, wreck your family, steal your soul, ruin your future, and entice you away from Jesus, His cause, and His people. The world is the mistress. Holding out his arms to you saying, do you want life and happiness? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Leave God and come to me. See, the world is the system that promises life but does not, cannot, will not ever deliver. We learned earlier in 1 John about the world. What is it? John told us that it is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, And the pride of life. You can pretty much take anything that you struggle with in this world and put it under one or more of those categories. You see many examples in the Bible of the world system wreaking its havoc upon people. Adam and Eve chose the world when they rejected God's prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. And they ate the forbidden fruit. King David chose the world when he raped Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite. The prophet Jonah chose the world when he ran away from God and sought life in Tarshish. The prodigal son chose the world when he demanded his share of the father's inheritance and left home to pursue happiness in wild living. But the older brother of the prodigal son chose the world when he stayed home And tried to work his way into his father's love. Peter, Simon Peter, the disciple, chose the world when he tried to impress his legalistic Jewish friends and played the hypocrite. But what about John's readers? What do you suppose the world was for them? The world was false teaching. Heresy. We've talked about that. The spirit of the Antichrist. And John wrote this letter to urge them, don't you dare give in to that. Real question is, what is the world to you? How does it hold its arms out to you, offering you life and fulfillment and significance if you would but put your faith aside for a little while and go to bed with her? I'll tell you what it is for me. Every time I walk up here and look at a big group of people like you all, I battle the world's system of finding approval in people and yet at the same time struggling with this horrible sense of inadequacy that I've had all my life. It's the world. It's my enemy. I hate it. Kids, college students, 
Soon you'll be going off to school, if you haven't already. The world is going to show up in the voices of friends tempting you to shake off the shackles of your Christian faith and join them in sinful behavior. That's the world system, friends. It's lying to you. It's offering life apart from God to you. Run the other way. Run into the arms of someone who does and will give you life. Jesus. Men and women, every day, every day, you're being told to build your lives on the accumulation of wealth, the acquisition of material things. Just put it all on your credit card. Keep up with the neighbors next door. You'll be the envy of the neighborhood. That's the world talking. Lying to you. You live in a culture that says the Word of God is an outdated book, hopelessly out of step with modern life. Don't take it seriously, says the world to us. Church is a waste of time. The gospel is intolerant. God is dead. Jesus was a misogynist. Give it up. Have some fun. You've heard those voices? It's the world. It's the world lying to us. And it only seeks the ruin of our souls. The thief said Jesus in John 10 comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's the world's agenda. The world system is everywhere you look, isn't it? It's on TV, it's at work, it's at the Waterford Town Center, it's at school, it's on the playground, it's at your book club, it's in the gym, it's in your neighborhood. It even shows up in here when you and I seek our own comfort instead of the needs of our community. It's the world. But John says, despite the pervasiveness of the world, you can live in victory. In fact, in a very real sense, John says, you already have the victory. Do you see that in verse 4? The second half of verse 4 says, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Past tense. Has overcome the world. Our faith. See, If you're a believer, you share in a victory that was already won by Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb 2,000 years ago. John 16, 33, words of Jesus, He said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I, He says, have overcome the world. Already, Jesus has overcome the world. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered On the cross and through His resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death and the world system. And He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He came to give you what the world says it will give you, but cannot. Namely, a peace that passes understanding, purpose, joy, fulfillment, and true life. You can overcome Because Jesus Christ overcame. Every day you and I face the downward pull of the world. So when it rears its ugly head, what should you do? Just so happened to pick up my copy of the Valley of Vision. Some of you know what that is. It's a book of prayers that were originally penned by some of the Puritans several hundred years ago. And sometimes on Sunday morning... That sounds really good, but I'm really not that faithful. But sometimes on Sunday morning, I'll pull this out and 
just open it up and wherever the page happens to fall, I'll read that prayer. And I wanted to read this prayer to you because it is what we should do when the world rears its ugly head. We should pray something like this. Listen. O God, the author of all good, I come to you for the grace another day will require for its duties and events. I step out into a wicked world. I carry about with me an evil heart. I know that without you I can do nothing. That everything with which I shall be concerned, however harmless in itself, may prove an occasion of sin or folly unless I am kept by your power. Hold me up and I will be safe. Teach me how to use the world and not abuse it. I like that. To improve my talents. To redeem my time. To walk in wisdom toward those outside and in kindness to those within the church. To do good to all men and especially my fellow Christians. And to you be the glory. To pray a prayer similar to that when we're about to step out into the world would be a good thing to do. Trust that what this passage says is true. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that you've been born of God, that you have a new heart, you have a new life. Believe that God's commandments are not burdensome. Believe that all authority in heaven and on earth is His, that He is praying for you every day that you stay strong against the world's enticements and that His way is always the right way. I'm telling you, Jesus is somebody you can trust. You might know this man pictured here, I think. You might know that man. You know him? Rafer Johnson. Those of you in my age bracket probably know that name. Rafer Johnson was the man who, in 1968, you know what happened? Along with Rosie Greer, wrestled Sirhan Sirhan to the ground after he shot and killed Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Rafer had been a movie star, too. He acted in two Tarzan movies, an Elvis movie, a Lassie TV episode, a James Bond film. He even played opposite Kirk Douglas in the movie Spartacus. He was Draba, the Ethiopian gladiator who defeated Spartacus but refused to kill him. Rafer Johnson helped found the California Special Olympics in 1969. And then he lit the flame at the beginning of the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. But before that, Rafer Johnson won the gold medal in the decathlon in 1960 in the Olympics. Today he's 80 years old. He's enjoyed much of what the world has to offer. But Rafer Johnson's a Christian. He's been born of God. And because he's been regenerated, he repented of his sin and put his faith in Jesus. He repudiated the just do it philosophy of the world. Listen to what he said two years after winning the gold medal back in 1960. I've come to see how anyone can achieve victory in life through Jesus Christ. We experience this when we acknowledge that the achievement is all his. Through our faith, we share in his victory. And so can you. Let's pray. 
Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for reminding us this morning of the gospel, the good news. Thank you, Jesus, for conquering sin and death and Satan and the world. Holy Spirit, we desperately need help. Sometimes we're not even aware of what the world is doing to us. Sometimes we just blindly move forward, not even aware that the world has enticed us into its arms. So please give us a discerning spirit. Help us to see and hear the voice of the world. Lord, we would pray that we would not run away from the world. We want to engage the world. We want to redeem what we can redeem. We want to be involved in the world. Lord, we want to be people in politics and education and medicine. We want to be inventors and artists and musicians. Lord, we want to be in the world. And we need your help to do that. But, Lord, what we also need help with is not being of the world. Not letting its lies seep into our thinking and begin to define us. So, help us, Lord to be doers of this passage of your word. Thank you that we've already overcome the world through the work of Jesus Christ. And we trust him in his name. Amen.